On Thursday morning, I was in a Zoom call, and uh, during COVID, a lot of us got uh, exposed to things like Zoom, and we got used to doing things that way, and it was really cool. I met with a couple of ladies who were in different parts of the United States, and they work for one of our partners, which is Compassion, and they wanted to chat to me as a local pastor here in Australia about how our partnership with them is going and what we can learn and how we can continue to grow from here. And we just had a fantastic chat. I've got to know each other a little bit and we got to see that we have this shared love for Jesus and a shared passion to see children around the world released from poverty in Jesus' name. And they were really keen to help our church to do that well. And as a pastor, I'm really keen for our church to play a role in what Compassion is doing. It was just one of those really cool, hey, we're on the same team kind of experiences. Have you had some of those? A little bit later in the morning, I had another one. Uh, some uh, people came in and we had an opportunity to uh, bless uh, a couple who are living rough in our local area, but our church didn't have the resources to do all that we would have liked to do in their situation. So I got on the phone and contacted a local Salvation Army church and the lady there was just absolutely brilliant. Um, it wasn't the day that they were supposed to be doing some of the things that she did for us, but um, I was able to go up there with this couple and spend a couple of hours just helping them in ways that I couldn't. I didn't have the resources or the system set up to do it, but she did, and we were able to partner together, um, again, just to love people in the name of Jesus. And that's what partnership is all about. And we want it to be really clear that we do this because God loves people. We want the reason that we do it to be really, really clear. And I was so glad that uh, we have a church in our area that is well set up for that. In fact, I found myself wishing they were just down the road instead of uh, a 12-minute drive away as, uh, as we went to see them. But partnership isn't always brilliant, is it? Have you had those moments where you just, you know you're supposed to be doing stuff together, you know you're meant to feel like you're on the same team, but it actually just feels like you're butting heads? Who's ever been there? Of course you have, because real people are imperfect. And so whatever we do together is going to be imperfect, and there's going to be those moments where it just doesn't kind of feel like it's working. On Thursday, I was doing some leadership work in an organisation, not here, just in case you get all suspicious. I was doing some work in an organisation where um, it exists for the purpose of the Great Commission. It's, it's an evangelistic uh, cooperation between churches. And, and uh, I have this leadership role, but as I was working with others in leadership, you could just see we're not in agreement on some things that are really important. And as much as I hate kind of arguing back and forth about stuff, it was so important that I needed to stand my ground to try and understand them really well and I wanted them to understand where I was coming from. And as much as it felt like um, we're just wearing each other out in this endless cycle of not getting anywhere, I know it's actually really critical for the long-term health of this organisation that we get some things right now. Because if we don't, we're not going to be able to move forward together. But that's not fun. And we've all been in those moments, whether it's as a family, as I spoke about last week, where you're getting together to nut out some family rhythms, or whether it's as a, in a, as a Christian who's working alongside other Christians in the Great Commission. You've all seen it in your schools and your workplaces and your PNCs and all those things. It's inevitable that those things happen. So how do we navigate that well? We saw an example last week of where Jesus helped his followers to do that. And um, we won't recap the story. Um, it's online if you want to go through it. But basically what's happening is a lady is doing something and other people in the group are saying, nah, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and Jesus is right there in the midst of that situation to say, you know what, guys, this is what is right in this situation right now. 
Um, and because he's there and he mediates, problem solved, move on. Um, and sometimes don't you wish that in the middle of these situations where you're kind of butting heads with somebody, don't you wish that Jesus could just step into the room in that moment and say, Mike's right, let's just get a move on and do what he said. I'm pretty sure that would be what he would say, but others don't always agree. And that's, that's the heart of the problem. What do you do if Jesus isn't sitting right there to help you to navigate and decide on things that really matter? Well, we're going to dive into that a little bit as we continue through our story in Matthew 26. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 26 and verse 17, it's always nice to follow along in your own Bible because the more you're familiar with what that looks and feels like, the better that is for you in your everyday life. It's also up on the screen, so I'll read it through as we uh, recount the story together. From verse 17, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Now, as you've been hearing about several times this morning, we're preparing to have a Passover meal together uh, this Thursday night. And so as we go through what they would have experienced at the Passover, I'm not going to touch on that too much today because you will get to experience some of that on Thursday evening if you're able to come to that. The story continues, though, and uh, as it continues, uh, listen out to what Matthew is really wanting us to focus on. He doesn't unpack a lot of what they experienced in the meal, but he does focus on a couple of things. From verse 20, when evening came, he, being Jesus, was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, surely not I, Lord. And he replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he'll betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he said. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So during this Passover meal, Jesus has pointed out that even while he has been present with them, he's been physically present with them, one of them hasn't actually been present with Jesus. Judas was physically present, sure, and he had a role to play in the group and and, uh, kind of people thought that he was one of them. But in his heart, Judas wasn't in it for Jesus. He wasn't following Jesus the way that a disciple does. He was in it for Judas. He was following his own uh, desires. And uh, as Jesus points that out, Judas now leaves and puts his plan into action. And we'll read more about that as the Easter story unfolds. But Jesus, having identified where Judas was really at and having uh, seen Judas leave to carry out his plan, uh, as they leave that spot, he then goes on in his conversation with the rest of his disciples. So this is as they head to the Mount of Olives. 
Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will fall away because of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. And Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Now, who's heard of the story of Peter denying Jesus? It's a famous one, isn't it? And because we focus on Peter, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that Jesus had said, all of you guys are going to fall away. You'll all be scattered. You're all going to kind of run away. You're going to turn tail. None of you is going to stand with me through what I am about to go through. And all of them are like, no way. You know, I know I am going to stand with you. But Peter, being Peter, he's the most vocal about it. And, of course, he's the one who actually has to learn the lesson in the most painful way because he is much more confident. Even if all these other jokers fall away, I know that I won't. And Jesus has to make it really, really clear. Yeah, you will. You'll all fall away. I want to direct your attention back to the verse from the book of Zechariah that Jesus quotes. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now that first part matters. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it today, but we touched on it last week as we reflected on the fact that even though Caiaphas and Judas, and we might think of Pilate and many others and Herod, uh, they played a role in the crucifixion story, none of them were actually in charge. Uh, The story of Christ's crucifixion is actually a story of what God was doing for our salvation. But as Jesus has just explained to Judas, even though in a sense he's not ultimately in charge, he has used his God-given autonomy to make evil choices. And he is accountable for those choices. As Jesus says to Judas, it would have been better if you had never been born. And that's actually an important thing for us to remember. Because no matter what choices other people make and how they impact on our lives, we do need to remember that they are accountable before God for those choices while at the same time recognising that God is sovereign and he accomplishes his good purposes all the time, no matter what choices you or I or anyone else make, he will always achieve his good plan. And so in this story, it was God's good will for Jesus to suffer and die. And of course you might go, how on earth is that God's good will? Well, we know where the story goes and Jesus even alludes to it. He will rise again. What Jesus did was necessary for our salvation. He took uh, the consequences for our disobedience so that all those who trust in him can be freely forgiven. And God is always going to be just. Either, like Judas, if we reject Jesus and say, no, I will not follow him, God's justice will be expressed in the fact that we will need to take responsibility for our own choices and our own actions. But for those who choose to be reconciled to God by simply believing, as Bevan said earlier, simply trusting in who Jesus is and what Jesus alone has done for us, then God's justice is satisfied because Jesus took the punishment, but the story doesn't end there, and he gave us new life, a fresh start, so that we don't continue to do the kinds of things that Jesus had to die for. We don't stay stuck doing the kind of wicked things that actually offend God's justice and hurt people in the world. So God's justice is always satisfied, but we get to choose in which way it will be satisfied in our story. 
Will God's justice be satisfied in that we will take responsibility for our own decisions? That's not a good outcome, as Jesus has just explained. Will God's justice be satisfied because we say, thank you, Jesus, because you've taken the consequences? That's the outcome that God wants for us. And that's something that we all need to take really seriously in the Easter story. But the second part of what Jesus talks about is the bit we're going to focus on today. I will strike the shepherd, God says, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Some really obvious imagery there, isn't it? Jesus is saying, I'm just about to be taken away to be crucified, and I know, even though you guys don't, that as a result you're going to be scattered. I'm not going to be here among you to keep you safe and to guide you and to protect you. You're just going to go all over the place, and you'll be shattered, you'll be reeling, you'll turn on each other even. Um, It's just going to be such a disorienting event for you. And you think about what happens to sheep when the shepherd is taken out of the equation. What do they do? Well, on the one hand, they chase after things, um, like they go searching for their own food and, and stuff like that. And on the other hand, they, they run away from things, you know, scary bears or wolves or noises in the night, whatever it might be. So they're both running away from things and chasing after things, but the end result is the same. They kind of go all over the place. So there's an obvious um, uh, analogy that Jesus is drawing here. Like when I'm out of the picture and I'm meant to be the centre of your community and the one who give, gives you direction and focus, when I'm out of the way, you're just going to be going all over the place as you chase after some things that you shouldn't, as you run away from some things that I would have otherwise protected you from. And so as we think about that, there's also a bit that we might not get because we don't speak the same language. And that word scattered, it has an origin story that people who speak that language would be familiar with because it's one of the expressions that they would use regularly. And it's the language of the threshing floor. Does anyone know what a threshing floor is? Um, it's, a, it's a familiar uh, biblical picture where um, basically you harvest all your, your wheat, let's say, um, you, you kind of smash it all up and you throw it up into the air and the chaff, you know, the straw, those bits of um, leaves and other bits and pieces, the wind just picks them up and takes them away. But wheat is denser and it doesn't get blown away, it falls straight back down again and then you can gather it up and you can go and make flour and do that kind of thing. So the scattering idea is what happens to the chaff, it just gets blown all over the place. And that's an illustration that the Bible uses on a number of occasions. And Jesus is basically saying here, you're all made of the same stuff. Um, unlike Peter, who thinks, no, no, those guys might be chaff. They might get scattered. I'm the real deal. You know, I'm, not gonna, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand by your side. And Jesus is saying, no, the wind's going to blow you away just like it blows everyone else. Um, you'll all be scattered here. None of you are any different in and of yourselves. To be human is to be human. We're all in the same place. Um, and so Jesus uses that um, analogy um, to get, really give them an idea of what's going to happen. And as you go through the Easter story, you see that's exactly what happens. And after Jesus rises again, what does he do? He'll gather them back together. And this is the really weird part. Um, because we started a few weeks ago saying with Jesus saying, right, I'm about to go... And when I go, you guys need to be about the Great Commission. You need to be about following me. Um, and making disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. The last time Jesus said he was going to go away, this is what was going to happen. They were going to be scattered. What makes Jesus think that the next time he goes away and he's not right there to mediate over all their disagreements, to hold them together, to give them purpose, to protect them, to do all the things that he was doing, what makes him think that they're actually going to be able to do what he's given them the responsibility to do? 
that as individuals and as a community, they're going to be able to keep him at the centre of their life and, and what they do together. Well, it's actually pretty obvious, again, when you go back to what Jesus says in verse 31. Because it might look superficially the same. Jesus was taken away then, he left them then. So is it going to be the same outcome? Well, no, it's a completely different story. What was happening in Jesus' crucifixion? He was taking on the sin of the world and the punishment that it deserves. What's happening in his ascension? Yes, he's going away in a similar way, but he's not going away to be crucified, is he? To take on our punishment. He's going away to rule over his church. He's being glorified. Um, so he's not actually kind of being taken away by force. He's actually going away to fulfill a powerful new role. He's being enthroned in heaven over his church. The first time he was taken away to be crucified, his disciples got left to their own resources. Right, what are we going to do now? Didn't go that well for him. What happens the second time? Jesus says, yep, I'm going away. I'm going to send you what you need. Does anyone know what that was? Holy Spirit, live inside you. You're not going to be on your own, guys. Yeah, on your own, you're chaff. You're going to get blown all over the place. But with the Holy Spirit in you, you are new people. You are not the same anymore. It's not in any way the same situation. And in the first time, God needed them to be scattered. Do you know why? God was making it really obvious. Our salvation was not a team event. It was God and God alone saying, I'll do everything that's needed. He wasn't being helped by any of his disciples. They all ran away. Jesus alone went to the cross and died us and saved us and rose again. But the salvation spreading to the ends of the earth, that is a team event. That's every single person who knows Jesus and has his Holy Spirit inside. You're part of the team. You're going to be involved in this. Um, you're not going to be scattered and just left on your own. You're a part of this discipleship community and that work belongs to all of us. So it's a very different scenario to what happened at the Easter story. So the question for us is, what does it look like so that we don't repeat what happened to the disciples where as soon as Jesus is out of the picture it's like, oh man, it's just chaos and terrible and sometimes church can feel like that. How do we make sure that it's more like the second time Jesus left where there's a community of people and we are on mission together and we are living together and loving each other and, and experiencing the blessed life that Jesus came to give us? What does it look like to be a community of people helping more and more people to follow Jesus more and more faithfully? What does it look like to partner together as the body of Christ the way the Bible calls us to when there are so many things that we disagree about or do differently? Do you want the short answer? It's the New Testament. It's what it's for. It actually describes this is what it looked like from here as they figured this stuff out. And these are the principles that they needed as they figured that out in all of these different places where it was happening in biblical times. The whole New Testament gives us everything we need and it would be absolutely perilous to neglect any part of the New Testament as we seek to answer that question. So let's, let's study the whole New Testament together this morning. No, that won't be what we're doing. But I just need you to know that this is why you've got to be learning the Bible constantly in your life because you will need every single bit of it in order to answer that question. And the beauty of what God has done in his church is that there will be 
particular people within our community who know different parts of the Bible really well or have applied it really well in their lives. And because we have enough people who have kind of done that, then together we're able to find what the Bible says and what the Bible looks like when it's applied. So that's, that's a really important foundational principle. You're going to need the whole Bible as you seek to do this. But let me just summarise it a little bit for you to give you some tools as we move forward in seeking to do that. Uh, as we read through the Bible, <clears throat> we discover as, as the church was established and as this community started making disciples and following Jesus together, that they soon identified that there are some first order issues that we have. Um, things like, um, and I think it was Bevan who mentioned it earlier, um, understanding that Jesus is fully God. Um, and if he's not fully God, he can't actually be the Jesus that the Bible describes. And when you know that together, it shapes your community and the authority that Jesus has in your life. If you don't know that, you can't actually be a follower of Jesus in the way the Bible describes. That might sound pretty obvious, but there have been times in the history of the church where that's had to be made really, really clear. So there are those first order issues where we've just got to be on the same page. There's no room to be able to disagree on uh, what we believe, what we do. Um, there are certain things that every Christian must do. There are certain things that every Christian must not do. And we've got to know what all those things are. So that's first order issues. Then there's going to be second order issues. And we see the church grappling with this from time to time uh, in the New Testament. And you can disagree on these things as disciples of Jesus and you can be better off for it. Because the fact that you disagree on that means that you have to work harder to think, well, what do I really believe and what is most important? And is that important enough that I can't work closely with this person? And as we wrestle those things through, we're able to really refine our understanding of what we believe and what we ought to do. Um, so you might think of the history of the church and say, well, there's some churches that baptise like this and there's some churches that baptise like that and there's some churches who take communion like this and there's some churches that do communion like that. There's a bunch of these second order issues where people have decided, you know what, this is so important to us, we can't actually do church life together because we would be so focused on which is right and which is wrong that we wouldn't just get on and do the things that we're really supposed to be doing. But we can still recognise each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and we can still partner together in certain ways. Um, I meet uh, regularly with pastors and we pray together and we support each other. Man, I am so enriched by the fellowship I have and I'm so glad I'm not trying to run a church with some of these guys because we'd probably just you know, be butting heads the whole time. That's what second order issues are about. It means you can love people and grow as you relate but you don't have to do everything together. But then of course you've got the last one. You've got these third order issues and these are things that you can disagree on and you can be better off because you've had to wrestle those things through and you can stay in the same local church or you can stay working really closely together because those issues aren't so important that they're going to disrupt the harmony that you have. Um, and as we um, spoke about some things on team night, we saw a whole bunch of examples. Oh, I see it like this, I see it like that and as we listen to each other, um, and I was really pleased, as I heard different points of view on some topics on Wednesday night, there wasn't a single occasion when the person speaking didn't have a truth that was useful and valuable. Not a single occasion. Now that didn't mean we all agreed, it just meant that we got to hear things and think about things and now we have to figure out well, what will we do about that together? And what things do we need to agree on and all do the same? And what things can we just do differently and that's okay? And that's a process of community life that is actually really, really good for us. And the Bible tells us a lot about how we navigate those issues as well. 
Now, we're not going to step through um, the story that I am going to flash through very, very quickly on the screen for you, but I would love for you to bookmark Acts chapter 15. And it's an issue that if you were to read it and not be in the right headspace, would probably be as boring as anything. Uh, Because they're arguing about circumcision and whether or not all Christians need to be circumcised. And I don't remember that coming up in a church meeting lately. Um, Certainly no one's booked an appointment with me to say, hey, Mike, um, is this something I've really got to do? It's just not an issue that we grapple with. But it was a massive issue for the early church. Um, And so we're not going to spend our time talking about why that was an issue and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that it was an issue with very deeply held convictions meant that it's a fantastic example of watching the community of God under the leadership of the people who Jesus personally trained to do that job as they sought the wisdom of the Holy Spirit together and as they uh, leaned on the scriptures that they consulted together, as they spent time talking it through and they didn't hurry, they, they gave everyone the voice, they were able to listen to one another, as they worked really hard to make sure that that issue didn't become the defining issue of their relationship. There are so many things that they did really, really well in Acts 15 um, that as you read through it, you'll be able to say, aha, uh-huh, I can see this, this happening and I can see some real wisdom in how Christians ought to navigate that. So I've mentioned some of the principles there, but here's, here's what I will bring out about that story. The issue, as I mentioned, that presented was, should all Christians be circumcised? Because before Jesus, if you wanted to be a follower of God, that was part of the deal. Um, And so some people who had been part of the the, um, Pharisees, uh, who often clashed with Jesus, but after his death and resurrection, they believed in him. Well, man, he is the son of God after all. Now they were following Jesus, but they still had these views about the Old Testament laws. And so they travelled up to a city which was mostly Gentiles as well as some Jews, and they said, hey, all you Gentile Christians, don't forget you've still got to be circumcised if you really want to be a follower of God. You must do that in order to be saved. So they said... Being circumcised is something which is a first-order issue. We've all got to agree on this. And if you're a guy, you have to do it. Um, And you can imagine there was a bit of distress caused by that. And uh, so as they wrestled through this issue together, the end result of that, the conclusion that they reached together is, you know what, guys, actually, it's a third-order issue. We are actually better off when some of you are convinced that you should be circumcised and you do that because that's part of who you are as a Jew. Um, And that ethnic heritage is a rich gift and you ought to celebrate that and enjoy it. But you ought to be very careful that you never say that it's a first order issue and because you haven't done it you can't be saved. Because as they clarify in the conversation and as Bevan talked about earlier, it's by faith alone in Christ alone that you are saved. And the apostles make that super clear in Acts 15 in the conversation there. So they clarify, no, no, it's definitely not a first-order issue. It actually goes down here to third-order issues. Well, why did they skip over the second-order issue? Um, Maybe we should have churches for people who think you should all be circumcised and churches for people who think, no, you shouldn't. But what would that do? It'd break the unity of the church. It'd rob the church of its diversity. Next thing you know, we'd have churches for people who love hip-hop over here and churches for people who love classical over here and churches for people who are from that ethnic group over here and churches for people from that ethnic group over there. There would be no visible unity in the church. It would be a tragedy. And for those people who made that the, the, bigger, the big thing, this is a defining thing, well then they have a a poorer sense of the grace of God because they still think that what we do is of ultimate importance, not what Christ has done for us. So they were really clear, no, no, you guys have to stay together. 
and you have to figure out how to live together as a community when you come from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds. Super, super important in the church. Now, as we navigate life together, um, it might seem a little bit academic to say, oh, this is all, isn't that just what pastors and elders have to worry about? No, you have to figure this out as well. Because there will be times when you disagree with somebody and it might be a third order issue. We should be able to disagree and stay together. And you might be making it a second order issue. I don't, I don't know if I can have fellowship with somebody like that. I think I'm going to go to a different church. Well, I don't know if that person's even a Christian. This is a first order issue. No, they're, they're, they're pagan. They're not even obeying God. There's a temptation to elevate things into the wrong category. And you'll need to check your own heart and consult the scriptures and say, have I done what these Pharisees have done? Have I put something in the wrong box? Because we have a tendency to do that all the time. But you know, it also works the other way around. And culturally, this is something we have to be very, very careful of. There are first order issues. And sometimes we pretend that they're not. <laughs> and sometimes we say, oh, you know, you believe that, I'll believe this. You know, and we're very suspicious of anyone who wants to control what we think. But as Christians, sometimes, and hence the discussion I'm having with the group I told you about earlier, sometimes we have to be really clear, no, this is what the Bible says, and you need to know this, and you need to believe this, and you can't do that, but you must do this. And we have to wrestle that stuff through. It's not culturally very cool to do that, but it's faithful, because otherwise your community doesn't revolve around Jesus. It revolves around all kinds of other things. So you need to learn to filter first order, second order, third order issues. Um, if we had more time, I'd talk to you about the end of Acts chapter 15 where Paul and Barnabas have a disagreement and that becomes a second order issue for them and you can learn a lot from that story as well. But hopefully I've just kind of whet your appetite. Knowing this stuff is actually really, really helpful for helping you navigate life in whatever community you're a part of. In your family, what's a big enough issue that you're not going to see each other? Oh, that's tough. What's, what's an issue which you care a lot about, but it's not going to stop you from being able to have regular contact with each other? This is just real life, folks. And the Bible gives us the, the wisdom we need to be able to navigate that. So trust what God says through his word on those issues. All righty. We're going to wind up there. Uh, and what I want you to do from here is read Acts 15, talk about it in groups, and say, what does this actually do to help us as a community to process this well? But the second thing I want you to do is uh, remember that the church in Acts 15, who had all the apostles that Jesus trained, that the Holy Spirit, everything was, was, was right there for them, they didn't rush this. They preserved relationships. They kept talking it through. Um, and, and as you follow their example, you realise that even when something's a first order, second order, third order issue, actually loving each other well as we're trying to figure that out is the key. What did Paul do when he was helping the Corinthians sort out their first and second order issues? But without love, knowing the right answer isn't the point anyway. Love each other on the journey of figuring this stuff out. And you'll see God reveal his wisdom in his time. Let's pray. God, we've um, kind of covered some big concepts. And so I pray that you would now do what only you can do, which is through your Holy Spirit to help us to apply these kind of very big ideas into the nitty-gritty of life together. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you're patient with us, that you've given us everything we need, that unlike those first disciples when Jesus was taken away from them, we're not going to be scattered. Uh, we're not going to be just all going our own way, trying to figure out life and make it work. No, you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us your scriptures. You've given us one another.
We have what we need in order to follow Jesus more completely and to help other people come to follow him as well. So may we be about that today. May we recognise the importance uh, of our relationships with one another as we're all seeking to navigate issues in life together. And may Jesus be glorified as we're really clear about what those things are that we must all hold tightly to. And what are those things that we can disagree on, but we just need to adjust how closely we work together as followers of Jesus here. And so I pray that as we, we follow you in this, that you'll be glorified in every way in our lives. In the name of Jesus, our Saviour, we pray. Amen.